0: Welcome, everyone, to the Investing Mastermind podcast. I'm Michelle Markey with my co-host, Sina Lohnholt and our very special guest, Adam Mead the CEO and Chief Investment Officer of Mead Capital Management, and also the founder of watchlistinvesting.com, as well as the author of The Complete Financial History of Berkshire Hathaway. And we're so grateful to speak with you today, Adam, and we're so excited to ask you a bunch of questions that are on our mind. And we hope that this will also be a great experience for you to talk with Sina and I today.
1: It's great to be here. I'm among old friends. (laughs)
0: Yeah, absolutely.
2: absolutely. So thank you so much, Adam, for joining. Um, First of all, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got drawn to investing?
1: Sure. So I come from a family of small business owners. Business has always been around me. My grandfather had a tree service business and my father had a trucking company. So just growing up, business was just always around me. And, uh, I had a firewood business. I sold cut and split sold firewood through high school. And then I had a welding business, uh, throughout college, you know, very small businesses. But, um, so, so business was just always again, around, I was always interested in it. And, you know, eventually you start to read and say, okay, what's well, out there? Just, you know, just like you guys. And, uh, eventually Eventually I hit, you know, Warren and Charlie, and it just kind of, it just kind of made sense from there. But, you know, just this this idea that business, businesses or stocks are businesses, businesses, you know, can be stocks just kind of came naturally because of this, this background around business. It just made all the sense in the world to me.
0: And did you find uh, Buffett and Munger in your high school days or uh, even sooner? Like, did you buy your first stock at age 11 like Buffett did?
1: No gosh I was you know a geezer by the time you know compared to to Warren I think you know I I wish I can't point to a date or a specific book I can't remember exactly what it was I I think I think it was Robert Hagstrom's The Warren Buffett Way probably early 20s I would say I know, I know. I opened my first brokerage account when I was when I turned 18. That's mm-hmm. you know, I, I went out and I said, okay, this is it's time. Um, and I've made all kinds of you know all the classic dumb mistakes, um, which we can get into if you'd like. But yeah, I think it was right around that time. You know, just okay, how do I do this? What makes sense? And of course, you know, you see Warren Buffett at the top or near the top of the the Forbes 400. All right, let's get to know this guy. What what did he do? How did he get here? And um, again, it just made all the sense in the world and. One thing led to another and I consumed everything I could find on both of those guys and a whole lot more and uh, never dreamt I'd actually write my own book about Berkshire Hathaway.
0: (laughs) That's amazing. I mean, that's an incredible journey. Yeah. And
2: I think, you know, we have the book right here. Everyone who's watching on YouTube, you know, can see me holding up the book here. And actually, Adam, this book has your signature because we met last year at the Berkshire Hathaway annual meeting. But your first uh, meeting was back in uh, 2012. So last year, was it was actually your 10-year anniversary, if we don't count the pandemic, where they unfortunately had to cancel the event. I know you watched it online. But what made you attend your first event back in 2012?
1: So I had wanted to go years before that. And you know, talk to some people around, around me, some friends and, oh yeah, yeah, we'll we'll go. And then it never transpired. And so I just said, you know what, whatever, like 2012, I'm just going, I'm just going. I didn't know anybody. I just booked my trip to Omaha, booked a hotel for myself, got there at uh, six o'clock in the morning, uh, to wait, to, to go inside. And, um, and I just went. And that very first year, I happened to be in line with a group of guys from Cincinnati. Uh, ended up sitting with them. They invited me out to Gorats with them. They had a reservation. We became good friends. I still still friends with them today. And um, we've since, you know, stayed together in in Omaha for our trips, and it's just sort of spiraled uh, from there. And you just, as you guys know, you just meet so many wonderful people out there. So, anybody's thinking about going and say oh geez you know my friend keeps backing out I'd say just just go just just come to Omaha you're going to be among 40,000 friends instantly I mean I don't think I've ever had a bad experience it's it's always just been interesting and I learn something new every year
2: yeah Yeah, what is it uh, sorry Michelle what is it that inspires you to keep attending every year
1: so i just i went and grabbed my i made a little montage from my my first year out there oh wow so this little um saved my peanut brittle thing and then uh
2: oh that's awesome so Yeah year, everybody this, you should go to youtube and and just watch this clip here where adam holds up
1: this this side um w- when we sat down there was like a little thing of C's, uh a, a lollipop wrapped wrapped up in a package and said you know please wait until warren says go and everybody's okay what's what's happening I believe it was sees was trying to get into the Guinness book of world records. It was something to do with everybody held up their lollipop, one of these chocolate pops. And then we unwrapped them and i put them in our, in our mouths together. And again, you know, 35, 40,000 people doing that. It was just the coolest thing. Um, so they've done things like that. They've had the Nebraska, uh, cheerleaders come in and they did you know this thing a ymca but it was to a berkshire tune like it's just it's always just fun it's just such a i, th- I think munger has called it a, a celebration and it really is and it's yeah. just so it's so fun and it's well beyond obviously we're there for for warren and charlie but it's it's grown well beyond that and um i mean again you make lifelong friends all around the world and i mean you two are a testament to that as well
0: for sure Yeah. And uh, would you also say that you go more so to re-listen to what Buffett and Munger say? Because some people claim that sometimes they go there more for spending time with other investors and other people because they've heard and learned what Buffett and Munger have said countless of times. But do you still get something a little bit more out of what they might say every year?
1: Definitely. There's a little bit of both. Um, I'm not a religious person, but I, I liken it to going to church, where you know what you're going to hear, and you've probably heard a similar story before. But you, you get something different out of it, or it's a refresher, or you know what, what have you? Those. I, I hope I'm not offending anybody with that uh, <laughs> analogy, but I, I mean it really is like that mm-hmm. to, for me. So there's a little bit of both. I mean, I've now that the meetings are recorded, and I know I can go back and and watch them. I'm a little less glued to my seat. The, the first time it was like, okay, don't drink, you know, too much coffee in the morning because you you don't want to have to go to the bathroom mm-hmm. <laughs> while they're talking, you know. So I'm a little less, you know, if I see someone in the in the exhibit hall, I'll talk to them even while the meeting's going or
0: mm-hmm.
1: you know that that kind of thing. But I I I, it's not I'm not I've never once thought I was bored sitting there after ten years listening to them. Cause it's always, they may say the same thing, but they, they say it differently or they bring it into context for the current, current environment or you're a different person. So you hear it differently. I mean, I've, as part of writing my book, in addition to reading, going through 10,000 pages of material, I read and watched all of the annual meetings going back to 1994. I think it was like 3,500 pages and maybe 140 hours worth of material. And I've gone, so I've gone through that two or three times probably, and I even watched some clips now and it's just, I don't know, it's it's maybe I've drunk the Kool-Aid or what have you, but I just can't get enough of it, even if it's the old stuff, because you just learn stuff. You learn new things every time. Mm -hmm. It's just timeless. I think that's kind of the biggest thing.
2: There's a saying like repetition is the mother of skill. So, you know, you can't, you can never hear it enough
1: and there's always i mean one of the my favorite things is when i'm sitting there and warren buffett makes me feel stupid and what i mean by that is like a couple of years ago there was uh there was this whole big hullabaloo about coca cola and their compensation program and a professional investor said oh you know he he i won't go into the all the details but even the professional investor got it wrong mm-hmm. publicly and warren buffett in the matter of a minute completely just cleared it up. And the thinking was just so clear. You know, I think it's, it's witnessing and experiencing that clear thinking that you can then apply to your own investment process. And and I always come away from the weekend, just so rejuvenated and just ready to ready to go. And it's, it's, it's just wonderful.
0: And I I wanted to also ask if you think anything will be different at Berkshire this year. Like, do you think A successor CEO to Buffett will be named, and if so, who do you think it might be? Well, I think
1: they've, I think we've already sort of settled on Greg Abel. That was my choice, and I did put it in the book. That was my, that was my bet. Um, (laughs) It is in print. So was it? I think it was last year they they sort of officially named Greg as, um, and not not as CEO or but certainly heir apparent. And if anything were to happen to Warren, he would be the choice. But the board, you know, of course, always reserves the right to do something different, but I think, I think it will be Greg. I think, I mean, it could be this year that they come out and say, Greg's the guy. And and honestly, I don't think anything will change. I, th- I think he's already sort of doing the job. Everyone kind of knows it's him already. He's been in this vice chairman of non-insurance operations for a couple of years now. I think 2018 uh, officially and I mean, I've talked to some of the managers about him and and they have good interactions with him. He's, he participates, you know, he still has, he, I mean, he learned at the feet of the master and now he's able to uh, apply this hands-off approach to, to those folks as well, while also being knowledgeable about their businesses. Mm-hmm. So I, I think it will be Greg. I don't know. You know, I, I think they've done a really good job of this transition. I think it will Munger said it a couple of years ago, you know, do you think Warren would spend all this time building this business and all of this and and just forget about sort of this, the end game, the transition? So I I, I would not be surprised if they just came out and said, you know, Greg's the guy and he's going to be CEO starting now and I'll be executive chairman, but really nothing would change even if the title happened. So mm-hmm. um, there is a proposal to split the chairman and CEO role Mm-hmm. Uh, by a, a shareholder so i don't know if they would would not do that just to say hey you know geez we're not giving in to shareholders pressure and wait another year until maybe that that dies down but uh i'm 98 percent sure it will be greg Abel.
0: okay and uh i know those proposals keep getting shot down and uh we haven't seen anything that at least, as far as I can tell, that Warren Buffett is uh, falling prey to senescence. I know you asked that question to uh, his best friend Charlie at the Daily Journal meeting, and I I was laughing very much at Charlie's response to you back then. <laughs>
1: well, at one point, Warren called Charlie his canary in the coal mine because Charlie's seven years older. So you mm-hmm. know, if if Charlie's still living, well, geez, you know, you still get a good seven years out of out of Warren. It really is amazing. And again, you go there and Warren gets these questions and he's talking about, I don't know, a number of policies at GEICO or some event 50 years ago. And and you really get to see this incredible mental capacity at work. Time will guarantee that he will not be there forever. And it could be sooner or later, but um, I think right now we're we're lucky to have them. I think we're uh, I don't want to say on borrowed time, but certainly to have these two guys well into their 90s and with Charlie almost 100, that's, uh, we're we're pretty lucky.
2: Adam, we need to talk about your book. <laughs> it's incredible. I, I really, really admire also how much work you put into this book. It's incredible. You mentioned it earlier also, 10,000 pages uh, that you needed to read. And just, you know, not only... Berkshire Hathaway but also about textile mills in general before Berkshire Hathaway became this conglomerate it was a it was a textile mill but you know why should people that are new to investing why should they read this book here the financial history of Berkshire Hathaway
1: well, and I, I should offer a disclaimer. The title is The Complete Financial History of Berkshire Hathaway. But of course, the, the second I published it, it became The Incomplete Financial History. So it does end in 2019. I probably will do an update you know, through 2024. It'll be another five years. But I, I think, and I used the, the word in, in relation to the annual meetings uh, of timeless, the word timeless, I think the history of Berkshire Hathaway the the examples might feel old and some of the numbers might feel small, but in proper context and looking for those, those timeless lessons, I I think they're, they're going to remain relevant uh, forever uh, or at least for a very long time, because there's, it's just the basics of business. And I think, you know, one, one goal I had for the book, I kind of wrote it for two audiences. One is the existing Berkshire shareholder, the diehard fan already has done a lot of the work that I did even to write the book and maybe just wants to use it as a reference guide or refresher on a particular year or a particular decade. And that's, that's fine. I'm under no illusion that everyone's going to make it through 750 pages of my two and a half pound book, according to Amazon. Uh, But then that second audience is the newer investor, right? You you say, okay, you know, maybe it's someone coming out of school, out of college, just learning investing. Okay. Berkshire Hathaway, Warren Buffett, I should clearly study him, but oh my gosh, how do I, how do I get up to speed on this incredible conglomerate that has covered over half a century of investing? And so I'm hoping that this is a way for the newer investor to say, okay, here's a relatively small compared to the material that's out there, get up to speed on the company. And and again, if, if someone wants to skip through it and read maybe just the chapter endings where I summarize the decades or, but there's, there's just so many timeless lessons in there. Um, you know, starting again, you, you mentioned CNA, the the textile mills. They're ancient at this point, right? But the the fundamentals of that business, working capital, uh, competition, um, you know, the decline of the industry, return on capital, all these basic things, these are timeless building blocks and principles that studying this very simple business, you can then apply and you can see how it's applied at Berkshire and without Berkshire. Uh, outside of Berkshire, over time and in your own investing uh, process, so I, I think and I hope that it it does help the the newer investors as well.
2: Yeah, for me personally, I really like to to use it. You know, like if I read an annual letter, 1986, need to go back and just you know what was was it he said about earn owners earnings, and then you know now I also have your book you know, to further dive into that year or, you know, certain topics that I want to to revisit. So I, I really like to use it like that. And I think it's definitely a book that's, you know, investors should have on their bookshelves to be able to look up certain eras or, you know, just look up certain concepts uh, from Warren Buffett style investing. What are some of the key financial lessons that beginners can learn from studying the history of Berkshire Hathaway?
1: Yeah, I, I think and and I hope I've done a decent job of of highlighting it. There, there's a lot of a lot of the details in there uh, in terms of just sort of the the what happened, but the the lessons and the principles. I think again, starting at the beginning, just sort of the basics of business. How do you look at a balance sheet or an income statement? What what uh, what is important uh, and and I have tried to pull out those lessons and and attach them to something that's that's real. Uh, but again, it's it's just sort of what are the the basic building blocks? Do you understand the business? Can you value the business right? And so you get to walk through some of it gets a little bit maybe esoteric when you get into insurance and you know you start talking about reinsurance and super cat and excess of loss and you know, deferred charge, all these sort of accounting terms. But if I've tried to take, again, those moments where Buffett, whether through his writings or his his speeches, it just sort of hits over the head. Oh, okay, this is how you think about that. I've tried through my own understanding of it to convey that in the book. And so I'm thinking about writing another book that sort of pulls out these key lessons and just really distills them away from sort of all the detail. Uh, but but those lessons are are in there. And again, you can see Warren walk through, starting with Berkshire Hathaway, which is sort of the cigar butt uh, type investment where it was just a quick flip. Still struggling through the textile business. You see him get into other industries, allocate that capital. You learn that capital is fungible. You can go into to any industry when you have the right manager there. And then as they get into buying other businesses and how the accounting works and how much they pay for these businesses. And, and what's surprising is that they're pretty simple businesses. It's nothing really that high tech or, and oftentimes it's, it's the opposite, right? It's the low tech things that, that Berkshire has gone into. And so you get to see this evolution of the man who started with the Ben Graham type approach and gravitated towards the Charlie Munger type approach buying better businesses and what that looked like and how he invested in them. And, you know, all the way up until today, uh, you know, recently when he, and I say recently, you know, it's been five or six, seven years now with a company like Apple, but you still see the man learn. And that's, that's fun to be able to re sort of reverse engineer. And I've tried to do that in the book as well, reverse engineer, these acquisitions and what, what perhaps he looked, for in them, what were the financial metrics? And you know, if you you can sort of forget some of the numbers, but just keep keep these key principles from from the book.
0: Part of a question I had related to that area was, why do you think Buffett stayed in the textile business for so long when he probably realized that there were changes happening, like increased foreign competition, and and I know he was remiss to want to let go of a lot of people because it was the livelihood of a lot of employees in the new england area and why do you think he he sort of like took a while to try to reallocate the funds out of what appears to be an industry that's in a slowing decline
1: yeah well i mean it was sort of a two-step a two-step process so he recognized it but he was also slow so one of the first acquisitions they made was in 1967 they bought national indemnity company an insurance business that uh insurance company is now one of the largest I think the largest in terms of statutory capital in the entire world but that happened in 1967 he took he took control in in 1965 so as the business shrunk he started allocating the capital pretty much immediately so that that did happen I think he was still, and this is part of the evolution of Warren Buffett, still very much of the sort of, again, the cigar butt type of of investing. You know, I can milk this thing, right? So there was, there was that dynamic. And then the dynamic of what you mentioned, Michelle, of, and I forget the exact way he phrased this, but he said, basically, if this business is going to not take up a huge amount of capital. We don't have to put any more capital into it. I'm okay keeping this business open in, you know, Fall River, New Bedford, Massachusetts. I'd rather, I'd rather keep it, rather than add a couple of points to Berkshire's returns, I'd rather keep this business open and keep these largely Portuguese uh, immigrants in that area employed. You know, they were all, and I'm just generalizing, but older, non-transferable skills, getting ready to retire. Many of them didn't speak English. This is all they knew, this is all they could do. And so this is even very, very early in Buffett's career. You see this, this human element to him. And now he compounded the problem and he said it was even a, mis- a mistake. He bought uh, actually uh, about 15 minutes away from me is is a, uh, a mill called uh, Wombeck Mills in Manchester, New Hampshire. He bought that in 1975. So he was still of the mind that money could be made in textiles. It was almost immediately recognized as a mistake. And the purchase was actually to get into a little bit of the weeds. They didn't have any of the physical plant or building on the books. It was bought below book value because it was again, just a a dying business. But by 1985 you know 20 years after he took over they officially closed down the textile business Uh, but it it, it took him it took him a long time but i I think there was that that period was really one of learning for warren okay this this that that is the point where you can't point to a year but i could say within that 20-year period that's when he morphed from more ben graham to more, say, Charlie Munger, Phil Fisher, that, that type of uh, philosophy.
2: Yeah, and, and I was thinking, you know, with with this industry in decline, where it was, you know, it was not, it was a slow decline over decades. And is there a lesson in this that new investors could learn from um, when they are doing their work? You know, do I want to invest in this business? Is there something that new investors can learn from, from this mistake?
1: <laughs> yeah. And, you know, it, 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 we're talking about now almost 60 years ago, right? So a lot has changed. And, and Warren, even in his earlier days during his partnership years, could could get in involved in a, in a dying business, could flip it. He could buy it for less than working capital or cash per share, make a quick profit and leave or, or become sort of an activist and unlock value. Thinking of Sandborn maps, for example, there are people who, who can do that today. Those things do happen dying. You know, I'm thinking of newspapers, uh, recently where it's a dying business. You kind of, you can kind of see that it's going down and there's all this competition, but you, you can buy it. If you buy it cheap enough, you can make money. And I think there are people that can do that. Me personally, and I think certainly Berkshire Hathaway today, that's not the playbook. I mean, it really, it's really buying better businesses. So um, I would say for a newer investor, avoid it. <laughs> that would be my advice. Uh, just don't try to be smarter than the other people that are probably smarter than you. And I put myself in that category. I, I don't know how to do it. It's much easier, much much more fun. To buy better businesses,
0: yeah, and maybe ones that are publicly traded, rather than uh, trying to go after some private equity, where feel like it takes maybe just inherently more time to get to know private businesses, and not that it couldn't be done, but there might be somewhat of a learning curve, as we've seen that that proved to be one of Warren Buffett's most salient challenges. So, you know, with with our time sort of coming to kind of an end soon, I wanted to start asking some final questions like what advice do you have for beginner investors who are just starting out? And how, how would you recommend they go about building a solid foundation for long-term investing success?
1: I think you, you have, first of all, get started and it has to be with real money. Don't try to do it with a plain money account and put at risk a meaningful amount, of your own capital, much easier done if you're younger, and it will feel feel larger than it is maybe when you're when you're younger and you have a smaller net worth. You know, you you have to feel it if you lose, and you will lose. I would recommend keeping a journal. It's one thing I didn't do enough of is keeping track. I have all the data, the trades, all of that, but I don't have as much of my own thinking written down. And you will delude yourself over time, and you really want you want that point in time. But I think defining your own circle of competence too is super important. And one, one thing I've learned and kind of continue to learn is you have the business, the industry, the stock, however you want to look at it has to interest you. You, you can, you really should start there. I I think if you're going to give yourself the best chance of success, don't, let anybody push you into looking at something or, oh, geez, you have to look into this. Or I mean, my own personal example, I'm not so much interested in, at least right now, I, I know banking really well. but I'm not, so, I don't think I'm really that knowledgeable in payments. You know, they're related, but not. So it, it just, if it doesn't strike you as, as an interest, maybe it will tomorrow, but really start there. And I I would say it doesn't matter the industry if, if you have a passion for learning about it you're going to go deeper than other people you're going to approach it differently approach it with curiosity and it will be less of less of a job less financial and um and that's kind of a, another lesson is don't make it all about the numbers really it's the economics of the business you know buffett doesn't have a finance degree he has an economics degree and how all of how the business fits in with the industry. Just read read as much as you can, but have it interest you.
2: So read as much as you can. Which books should we read right now?
1: <laughs> oh, what gosh. can you recommend? Um, well, uh, assuming everyone's read my book, right? That's that's a starter. Um, no, I certainly again for the beginner investor. I, I mean, I've read or listened to Robert Hagstrom's "The Warren Buffett Way" at least a dozen times over the course of my investing career, uh, his other books, just start somewhere, start somewhere that, I mean, I think that's a very accessible book and just go out from there, you're going to come across some wonderful people. I mean, I I've said, I think even in my introduction or my acknowledgements of my book, I mean, I feel very lucky to have stood on the shoulders of some wonderful scholars that came before me. I mean, Andy Kilpatrick. You know Larry Cunningham, his work. I mean, just some wonderful, wonderful people, uh, and and things that they've they've written. Um, I really like Bruce Greenwald and Pat Dorsey. Th- their work on just understanding the sort of true competitive dynamics. Actually, Bruce Greenwald's book. One of his books is "Competition Demystified." Highly recommend that book, uh, as well as his second edition of "Value Investing: From Graham to Buffett and Beyond." He really that that book. Uh, value investing really it's it's almost like buffett is putting numbers and sort of sort of a how to to his approach like buffett's never written a book of his own but for at least for me bruce greenwald's book really just sort of revealed a lot of how the mechanics the numbers how to look at it how to truly differentiate businesses that have a competitive advantage and it's okay it's okay to invest in those that don't but just at least be honest with yourself about the type of business that you're investing in. So those, those are a few that I think would be great for uh newer investors to start with.
0: Cool. And how about, is there any book you're reading right now?
1: Oh gosh, I'm all over the place. I'm reading uh, the Beartown series by Frederick Bachman right now. Not, you know, it's a fictional, fictional <laughs> account. There's a book called the grid that I've, I've recently, I, we just put solar on our house and I've become increasingly interested in electricity. Yeah, I
2: think I have it over here, actually. The grid? <laughs> on the bookshelf, yeah.
1: Oh, okay, yeah. So again, it's just sort of, and I have, I mean, probably 30% of the books on my bookshelf uh, around my office I've not read. So, you know, you buy them, okay, this is great. And then you don't read it, and but maybe two years goes by and and it's, it's right for you or something happened where, okay, now it makes sense and you're willing to uh, or ready to sort of receive it. Yeah. And um,
0: expand your circle of competence. So mm-hmm. that's awesome. Yeah. You got to do it when it feels right. And yeah. so with that, I also want to ask, where can people find and engage with you?
1: I've been spending a lot more time on Twitter recently. So my handle is at BRK student. Actually, I should mention, I have a, a companion website to the book called the oraclesclassroom.com. You can always also get there uh, by BRK book com. I have a lot of the source material from the book. I have my Excel spreadsheet that went into doing all the charts and tables. Uh, that's available there. I think there's over 200 tabs uh, in that spreadsheet, and um, I'm on Substack as well. Again, same watchless Investing, uh, WatchlistInvesting.com. So yeah, one one of those one of those uh, few be able to reach me. I, I do you know DMs are open. I am on I'm on Facebook and Instagram, but not so much. I can't guarantee I'll be timely on on those avenues. But
2: um Yeah, I also noticed notice actually your LinkedIn profile. You publish articles sometimes and actually started to to publish again. Is that something that you're gonna start doing more?
1: Yeah, I, I try to. It's it's tough kind of balancing everything. Um I, I usually post a link to my Substack. Articles I try to put out three or four, you know, per month. Um, just kind of that. That's more of again. If I look, li- if I listen to a, a Buffett video and I have a thought, I'll you know put it down in words. Or if I'm thinking through a problem, I'll put it out there. That's free. My my Substack, and then I have uh, a deep dives investing service where I look at good companies and, and go real deep into them, and and that's uh, that's a paid version at watchlistinvesting.com.
0: Yeah, which everyone should check out if they want to get really into learning companies. And you're a wonderful teacher, Adam. And we're so grateful that you spoke with us today and shared your wisdom. Thank you so much.
2: It was awesome. Thank you for stopping by, Adam.
1: You're welcome. This is a lot of fun.
2: Take care and see you in Omaha.
1: (laughs) Definitely. See you there.
2: We are back on Tuesday. Until then, bye-bye. Till next time. If you enjoyed the show and found the content informational, we would be super grateful if you would leave us a review and follow us wherever you get your podcasts so you automatically get new episodes in your feed. We publish a new show every Tuesday.
0: The contents of the Investing Mastermind podcast are for educational, informational, and entertainment purposes only. None of this is investing advice. And if you need help in your personal situation, please consult with a professional.